to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Rob Galbraith. Rob is one of the most fascinating and versatile music people I know. He discovered R&B legend Clifford Curry back in the 60s and has been Ronnie Millsap's producer for over 30 years. Rob's also a songwriter, publisher, and occasional artist who has released a handful of funky albums, including the underground classic Nashville Dirt. Thank you for being my guest today, Rob, okay. and taking your time to talk to me about your life in music. Um, you you grew up in East Tennessee, yeah. in Concord, Tennessee. Yeah, Concord's a little town. It's better known for the Farragut community now. Farragut is about 15 miles this side of Knoxville. It was a little bitty. It was all country when I grew up. Now it's like Brentwood or something, you know, but it's a, it was real rural, and I grew up there, and and it kind of like in the shadow of the Smokies and the and the, the mother of country music. You know that that's the mother load that area. East Tennessee man is so that in Eastern Kentucky and Western North Carolina, Southern Virginia. That's where so many of the people made Nashville what it is came from. Yeah, you know Appalachian folks, hillbillies. But I never got into that, <laughs> especially once I heard Ray Charles. Yeah. <laughs> it's like ah. Uh, uh, I never, I never got into country until I got down here, so I worked with Ronnie. Yeah. What are some of your earliest memories of music around you, though? Were you born into? A oh, back when family? I grew up, man, in the fifties, mid fifties, it was like you know, Gogi Grant, The Wayward Wind, and you know, songs back in the fifties. And then I heard Elvis on radio. I get, I probably heard him on, you know, transistor radio coming from WLAC or somewhere at nighttime, and that was like I never heard anything like that. Nobody had. You know, first time I heard Hound Dog, <laughs> it's like, what's this? When you're when you've been, all you hear is you know Frank Sinatra type crooners, and then you hear Hound Dog. My gosh, it was a it was a big change. And then in '58, the first record I ever bought was a Hallelujah I Love Her So by Ray Charles. And then in '59, I heard What Did I Say with that Wurlitzer on it, and like, and uh, you know that's that changed my taste. That's all I cared about, you know. That Ray was a big influence. But yeah, I grew up up there and worked in bands. You know, I've learned piano in elementary school and played saxophone in a marching band. Then I got into played saxophone in a rock band in high school. Then did it in college. Ended up playing, leaving the saxophone behind and playing piano mainly, and then ended up doing some singing. And uh, then I got off into radio. And I was in a band with Clifford Curry. That's how. Is that how you met him? Yeah, uh, we were in a band together, four guys and Clifford, Sweet Clifford and the Midnights. First job we ever played together, I picked him up because he didn't have a driver's license. Clifford didn't have a driver's license; he was about thirty years, thirty years old, or older. And I picked him up, and we went to this club, and 
outside of Knoxville, and it was a it had four the audience consisted of four guys and a German Shepherd, you know, dog. And that was that was Clifford's and my start. And then we got a job at playing a, a real hip in-demand club up there on campus. Played it for a while, then I thought I might want to get in the radio, and a guy trained me, and uh, I finally got a job part-time at IVK, which is a big country station now. And uh, then I moved over to WNOX, and, and it was a big rock station. And when we were on the air at, uh, at nighttime, WNOX was the first radio station in Tennessee, even before WSM. And uh, it was the 12th in the nation, and they had a big signal. When they went at night, they went directional east. They covered all the way from Baltimore up down to Mobile. And uh, and I was on at nighttime, and I did that for a few years, and then I came down here. Uh, I, and then when I was up there doing that, I'd played with Clifford, and I'd go in and cut some demo tapes on him, uh, you know, a little mono track studio. And then I talked to Buzz. I'd met Buzz somewhere, there, and, and uh, I talked to Buzz about it. And maybe I sent him a tape or something, and, and Buzz brought Clifford down here, and he cut him. I remember I used to come down, and I would try to parlay the fact that I was on radio at night, and we covered the whole daggone south, trying to find somebody in Nashville that was into something other than country. I knocked on a lot of doors. I would come down in the daytime, knock on doors, go back and do my radio show at night. And I uh, knocked on a lot of doors and finally met Buzz and then probably over at Combine. I remember being at Combine Music, the old building, and uh, where Bob Beckham ran it. And Bobby Russell, who didn't write for them, but he was there. And he, and, uh, he knew I was on the radio and whatnot. And I was a 21-year-old you know, kid. And he played me a, he had a little five-inch reel-to-reel we went in this little mono studio they had, and he played me that. He said, "See what you think of these two songs," and uh, he he played me a tape that had "Honey" and "Little Green Apples," just him and a guitar. <laughs> I said, "Golly Moses, uh, yeah, who's who's not gonna like either one of them?" And uh, then "Honey" became a huge record. It spawned a cottage industry, as a matter of fact. But then I moved down here and and. Uh, was managing some R&B artist, Clifford, that Buzz had recorded Clifford and a, two, a duo called Van and Titus Elmore. Van and Titus. I met those two guys. And uh, then uh, their names were Billy and George Brantley, and, and Buzz changed it to Van and Titus Elmore. <laughs> he cut a good record on them, man. And then, uh, uh, well, he did on everybody. And then he, uh, he brought another act down here, Jonah Ellis, and he had Jonah and the Whale. And they were all three on Elf Records. And then I moved down here, was kind of coordinating their bookings. And did that for a while until uh, I took my little booking agency over to uh, another place. It was a big booking agency in Nashville. And, and they had a publishing company. It was Hubert Long International. And they had Moss Rose Publishing. And you ended Ashworth. up writing for them too, didn't you? I did. I did. I went over there and took my little publishing company and I, I demoed a couple of songs that I'd written. I wasn't really one thought of myself as a writer. I demoed a couple. And Billy Sherrill heard one of them and put it out. And then he had me do an album. You know, for them, and uh, kind of like learning about production by the city, flying by the city of pants, on the job training, I guess. And I did that, and then I uh, went to work for Columbia f for a year. That record came out, and I, I was a reticent artist at best. I didn't care a whole lot about performing like that. I liked the studio stuff better. I didn't mind being in a band, that was fun, but I didn't, as a solo artist, I was a little nervous about that. So I told Billy, I said, man, this artist thing, I don't know if that's for me. I said, I'm thinking about going to New York and trying out for one of those A&R trainee jobs I read about in Billboard. He said, well, forget that. Just go up there and interview for regular 
A&R job down here doing rock. And so I did, and they hired me, and, and I was trying to find rock acts out of the South back in 1970. And as far as I know, maybe the only time still that a major label has had somebody designated strictly to find rock. I found them a bunch of hit artists. They didn't sign any of them. J.J. Kale, I took up, I took up uh, Crazy Mama after McElroy played on it. Crazy Mama after Midnight called me The Breeze and Magnolia. After Midnight it had been number one by Eric Clapton. And uh, the guy up there, and I didn't hear it. So, you know, and I talked to Leon Russell about that. I've, it worked out better that Leon signed him later on Shelter Records. Johnny Kale, and then uh, Harry Chapin, a bunch of, bunch of different artists. And I did that for a year. Then I went to Combine and started writing for them and did, did some recording then. So. But you mentioned that first album was it was called Nashville Dirt. Yeah, and yeah. It's one of those records. It has to develop this underground following. Uh, it, you know, of all things, it kind of has. It's one of those records that I did another one later called Throw Me a Bone for RCA about five years later. And I'd go to parties or somebody's house for dinner and they'd put that record on. And I'd be like, take that thing off, man. I'd say, I'm embarrassed. You know, like, because it wasn't necessarily what was popular on the radio at the time. But it's, the Dirt album, man, has kind of developed a little bit, a bit of a following. It, it came out again the other day and on CD in either, uh, I forget, Japan or Korea. And Bone came out in the other one. Uh, yeah, but that was a, it was just, a, it's an oral picture. It's what you're doing at the time musically. It's not necessarily what you're going to be doing the same thing five or ten years later, but musically that's what it did then. And uh, it got some good, real good reviews. It didn't get a, a it didn't sell much, but, but and I never went out on the road to promote it, but it got, it got some great reviews. And uh, I, I was, it was fun to do. You learn about it, you know. Yeah. Kind of got me started in that. And a couple years later, you were also part of a, of a band called Chubal with Danny Yeah, Stanley. when I went over to Combine and uh, uh, started writing for them, I wrote some stuff, and then Bob Beckham put together a five-piece band with Dennis Lindy and me and Alan Rush and Terry and Randy, guy, three guys from Oklahoma that had been in a band out there. And, uh, and Dennis, but Dennis didn't go out on the road with us. We went out and toured. We had real good management. Bert Block, he managed Christopherson and people. But Dennis, he had gone out with Christopherson, he and Billy Swan, I think, with the Swanettes or something. They, they backed up Chris at the Troubadour somewhere, and Dennis came back and said, I'm never going on the road again. <laughs> and he didn't. But he worked in the studio with us. He was a great guy. And we, uh, another guy named Lump, Ed Williams, played bass, and we went out and played. And Bobby Ogden, keyboard player, went out with us. We toured around for a summer or so there. And and did that did that album and then uh and then later on I did that Throw Me a Bone album. Yeah. Didn't you like as Jubal also do some session work with Elvis? You know what, man? Uh, I never met Elvis. Several of us, Dennis, and and uh, Alan Rush and Bobby Ogden and myself went and played did a horn work on a. Uh, Promised Land and I was the only horn player. I played saxophone. That thing was just clicking and clacking and going on, making all kinds of noise. But, And Bobby played like viol, fuzz violin, I think. And Den Dennis played fuzz guitar and Alan played fuzz bass. And, and between the four of us, when you put all that, it's kind of like that Nashville harmonic that was on the, some of the uh, Mickey Newberry records. You fuzz all that stuff together and, and we had at least had one horn in there. And you put it, sink it back down in there and it sounded like a saxophone section. I, I 
told Felton, I said, man, you took us off. And he said, no, I promise you, it's over on the left. It's kind of down low. I said, Felton, I can't hear it. But he said he claimed his own ears. And then I got credit for another Elvis session at Graceland that Jerry Kerrigan borrowed a conga drum of mine and took it down to Graceland and cut some stuff. And I'd see my name on an Elvis record that I didn't have anything to do with. <laughs> but, but Kerrigan signed my name on the time card, I guess. But uh, Yeah, I never met Elvis. I never, I never saw him. Uh, and those shows he was doing, you know, they're basically like, Flash bulbs and screams. <laughs> That's all they were. But, uh, I mean, Dennis, I don't know if Dennis ever met him, but I mean, Dennis wrote one of his biggest records, though. Yeah. But anyway, I did that for a while. And then they did throw me a bone album. And then Bruce Dees and I brought Larry John Wilson up here and produced some stuff for him for Combine. Yeah. Those records are some of my favorite records. Well, they've done, they've got their own little following, man. They, you know, they, they uh, are well thought of. Those are good records. We cut we cut half of one. The last one we've changed. We cut half of it here, and half in Muscle Shoals. I think that was the one. I don't think it was that uh, second album. The first album we did everything out at Chip Young Studio out in Murfreesboro. And uh, the second album, I'm, I don't know. I think we may have done it here, but uh, Larry John was an interesting bird. He this was a useless useless death. Because he had a head injury of some kind, and he was up in a hospital in Virginia. And my understanding is that he was kind of headstrong, and he was all hooked up to IVs and things. Need to go to the restroom, and didn't want to didn't want to bother calling the nurse. Who just got up, was walking to the restroom, and fell and died. You know, and he he was going to overcome what he had, had, whatever it was that he was in there for initially. I only met him once at one of Donnie Fritz's Christmas shows at oh, yeah. Douglas Corner. And uh, Donnie's somebody else that you have oh. a lifelong friendship with. How did you meet him initially? Oh, at Combine. Uh, Chris wasn't around all that much, but Donnie was around there. We wrote we wrote one song together called, uh, I think it's called I'm On My Way. And we thought it'd be good for Brenda Lee. <laughs> she really was, her career had already peaked, but... They were pissing it to Brenda Lee, and whoever was doing it turned her down. And Donnie and I said, "Oh, she'll never strike again if she didn't get that, to cut that song." I don't remember that much about it, but Donnie was—he's one of a kind. Yeah, and you recorded uh, 300 Pounds of Hungry" that he wrote with Eddie Hinton on your yep. second album. I've cut that. I've done that thing live on most every show I do, man. You know, it's a—I call it a lyrical giant. I tell people say, I didn't write this, but. I've done it a long time. I guess Tony Joe and Donnie and me maybe the only ones ever do that song. Well, Donnie and I just flipped, performed it in Birmingham Saturday did, night. Did y'all do it? And he always introduces it as, and this is a true love song. <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah, Fritz. Oh, Donnie, my, my daughter did a, she's a, a writer, not a, she's a novelist, journalist type writer. She teaches school here in town to make a, to support her habit writing Lacey, my daughter, but she wrote for the scene for a while and different things, but she was doing a, a profile on Donnie, and they became good friends, and I used to find out what Lacey was up to more by talking to Donnie than I talked to Lacey. He'd come up to town, they'd get together, and they'd go some shows or something. You know, she just loved Donnie, and uh, he's he's a he's a wonderful guy, yes, and we're lucky. After, the last time I saw Chris Thompson, we were talking, I said, man, we're lucky Donnie's with us. Because he went through some tough physical stuff. Yeah. One thing that was really cool about that show we did in Birmingham is the surgeon who put in his new kidney 
was there at the show, and the two of them had a really good moment. Who was that? The guy who uh, did his kidney replacement oh, surgery. Oh, he's right, right. See, he's had some, I, I don't know what done, he's had kidney, heart, and everything, man. He, you know, he's, so he was there. Well, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Donnie's done well, man. He seems to be healthy, you know. Yeah, he's hanging nice. in. He, uh, you can't explain Donnie to people, man. He's a, a legendary guy, and he's one of a kind. That leaning man of Alabama. <laughs> he was playing that. He played that song called "What's It?" Mm mm mm. Ooh ooh ooh. Something like that. <laughs> I don't know if he and Penn wrote that about it. A song called "Ooh ooh ooh." <laughs> Damn, Donnie. I need to ask him about that. Ask him about that. Yeah. That is funny. He's 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 a sweet, as natural a guy as there is. And if you're around Donnie and you want to be friends with him, man, you better better not be any airs about you, because he's just he's laid back. Donnie reads a lot too, man. You know, he's a fairly voracious reader, uh, much more so than me. But uh, novels and things like that, you know, smart guy. And but he's he's one of the beautiful people. He sure is. So earlier you mentioned some of your production work with uh, Larry John Wilson, but you also produced uh, Kenny Rogers and your most, I guess you know most enduring uh, professional re relationship with Ronnie Milson. Yeah, I, I met Ronnie back when I was on the radio because he used to listen to me when he was in Atlanta. He was doing an R and B type thing, kind of like the White Ray Charles. Ray told him, he said, man, they already got one of me. You need to be who you are. But Ronnie, was he could imitate anybody. And he cut a record for a scepter. And we were playing on the air. And he came up and did a promo thing. And I met him. And I used to go down and visit him in Atlanta. And then uh, when he would move to Memphis, I'd go visit him down there. And then I'd tell him about Nashville, one thing or another, what I knew of it. And he came up here and, and played a club for a while. And then uh, I took Tom Collins one time down there. And Tom... Uh, and Ronnie played him I Hate You. I had Ronnie play him a couple of things, and Ronnie played him I Hate You, which Dan Penn Dan wrote. Penn song. And Tom and could see that there was a countryside to Ronnie. So when Ronnie was up here, they took him to Stone Country, and Jerry Bradley thought, well, you know, he's he's rock. But they played him. They cut, I think they cut him over here, three, or maybe they cut him Clements, but I think they cut a bunch here because their office was right across the street. And uh, Tom and Jack Johnson. And they cut some stuff on Ronnie, and... Uh, Got him a deal, and he was a real country. And and uh, uh, and then in '78, Ronnie wanted to start a publishing company. Basically, besides being involved in publishing, I think he wanted it because is as an input for uh, people to bring him songs. He because he was getting all his songs through Tom. Tom's a wonderful publisher, uh, but some people felt that you know that Tom may not give their song as much credence if he didn't publish it. And uh, so in addition to Tom finding songs for him, uh, Ronnie started that company and we were a place that people could, that's why Tommy Brassfield brought up No Getting Over Me, yeah. you know, and played it for me. I told Ronnie, when it was on Thursday, I said, man, you need to hear this song. He said, well, give it to me and I'll take it home. And, I said, and he had, we had had another my Mac McAnally song that I, that I had given to Ronnie called "It's an Old Flame Burning in Your Eyes, I think it was an old flame burning. And Ronnie took it home and didn't cut it. For whatever reason, I don't know, Alabama did it. 
But I told him, I said, no, you'll come in here and listen to it in my office right now, or you'll hear it on the radio by somebody else. This this was not going to last. And uh, that weekend, we we put it on hold that afternoon. And that weekend, you know, uh, Tommy and them turned down Alabama, Janie Warnes, and Jennifer, I mean, Jennifer Warnes and Janie Fricky. And, and uh, three weeks later, we cut it. And one week after that, they came out with a blitz, one of those colored 45 vinyl records. And I think Rick handed it to Walt in his receiving line when he's getting married. Like one month after they demoed the daggone thing, it's in his hand. I think Walt thought, well, this is pretty good. This, this music business is okay. <laughs> a huge record. But I, I worked, Tom and I produced some stuff together with Ronnie, and then I've been doing him by myself for longest time and, and uh, we did one record a duet with Kenny uh, it was a they got a Grammy you know it, it was a, we did one thing with him but the thing I think one of the things I'm most proud of working with Ronnie is besides the Mike Reed songs that we developed uh, was at that time we were one maybe the first and I think there's been one since but this was back in like 80 I guess, 86, we got nominated for an engineering Grammy. I didn't engineer, but they would take 50 of the top albums or a bunch of albums and send them to these top engineers in the country, and they would pair them down to five. We were in there with Pink Floyd and Michael Jackson. There's a classical division and a non-classical. And to just be nominated for an engineering Grammy, that was Pretty cool, man, because we made some pretty good sounding records. Spent a lot of time in there. Ronnie's a pretty much a perfectionist. And he's like Ray Charles, man. When you're in there in the studio with Millsap, he's like one big ear. He's not given to the distraction of vision. Like right now, I'm talking to you, but, you know, I can see everything in this studio, and, you know, everything registers with your mind. But when you when you don't see, man, you, you only hear. And he hears deep, and he hears through things, and you have to kind of have to work to stay up with him. But it was, edu- it was educational working with Ronnie, man, all those years. But I worked with, I've worked with him since 78. We're kind of like joined at the hip, you know, done a lot of work. <laughs> and we have, uh, I found Mike Reed and um, as a writer, and he was kind of leaving his one company he had been writing with for briefly and going to go back to Cincinnati. He was an ex-pro football player. And he I've done some work with him, and I love what he did. And he came by the office for you going to leave town, like, you know, in a month or something. Asked me if I'd be interested in him writing for us. I said, Lord, yeah. So we had a handshake deal. Not an exclusive writer, just shake hands. You write him, we'll cut him, you know. And it worked like that for seven years we did that. And he wrote like 11, 15, I think 11 number ones for Ronnie and had like 15 cuts or something. And then later on he wrote the, that wonderful I Can't Make You Love Me for Bonnie Raitt. He's still writing wonderful stuff. But I'm doing this new album. It's a, Do you know about that one, Andreas? The, uh, it's a duet album. Uh, basically, the idea is do your favorite Millsap song with Ronnie. Okay. And is that the one that you had Leon Russell on? Leon's on there. Ryan Leon did one. And Willie's on there with a, Mike, a new Mike Reed song. We, we've got like four iconic artists with Leon and Willie and and Dolly Parton and uh, George Strait, and uh, and then we got Little Big Town, Jason Aldean, Luke Bryan, Casey Musgraves, and Stephen Curtis Chapman from uh, the Christian community did a thing with us. It's a wonderful album. 
got three or four new songs, and uh, the rest of them are Millsap hits. It's 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 really, I have to say, it's pretty good. People ask us, we didn't even cut Smoky Mountain Rain. People said, what, what, who's going to do Smoky Mountain Rain? Said, well, we didn't cut it. We just didn't think of it. It was a natural type thing to do a duet with, and it didn't have any particular person in mind. And people, But we needed to cut that, so I said, well, you know, it'll make sense if we could get Dolly to do it because she's known part of that area. Yeah. And uh, so I checked what she likes to sing in, and, and we cut it a step lower than what Ronnie originally did it and, and which was a little too high for most singers but it's just perfect for Dolly she said well if it's in the, if it's in a key I can do it and I'd be honored to do it and it worked out great man she's a she's a very creative person and we turned that song around instead of Dolly singing it from a third person like they're both singing about Ryan's relationship with her this other woman she sang it like that and then we asked her said you know we thought about what the possibility of doing it like she was the woman who he left, first person. So instead of her singing from a phone booth in the rain, he called to tell her, she said, from a phone booth in the rain, he called to tell me. You know, and I said, and then she changed it. I said, don't bother, I'll be gone. And she, she put a whole other spin on the thing, man, and different ad-libs on the end made the whole new new record. It's, it's pretty cool. But anyway, I've been working on that for a while. And uh, then we got this Clifford Curry thing with Ronnie happening that duet a beach music record and that's that's kind of what's happening in my in my world today <laughs> yeah and we talked about the, the couple uh solo records you did in the 70s but then after not doing another one for a long time you yeah. did too long at the fair not yeah. too long ago which is another yeah. really cool record fred marlin my friend here bruiser we he wanted me to go back in and do some stuff and so i hadn't I think the last time I sang live was like in the 80, something like that. And I started back singing again on live around here in 2007, I guess. And uh, 2008, it was like a long time. I was all, but uh, yeah, I did that too long with the fair thing. It was kind of more of a jazzy, bluesy type stuff. And had those players come in on a Saturday. I, I think it was two Saturdays and uh, they did it for either, I don't know, for free or for pittance, whatever. They just did me a favor. And it was I was nervous because they knew me as a producer, you know, and publisher. They didn't know I'd ever done any artist stuff. Well, a couple of them did, but most of them didn't. And all of a sudden, in there singing with Hungate and Chester Thompson and Pearson and Catherine and Paxton, it's like, whoa. I always said a, a producer ought to be forced to have to go in the studio and sing with other musicians singing live sometimes just to remind himself of what it's like for an artist. Because, you know, we get we go in the studio and produce and you've done a lot of it, you don't get nervous going in, you may get excited, you know, you get you do your work, you pretty much got to know what you're gonna do, the people you're gonna work with and the songs you're gonna have the artist do. But it's uh I forget how artists sometimes can be nervous. Especially new ones. You know, and because uh, I got man, this was, you know, this was 04, 03, I guess, when we cut that thing. That was 30 years after I'd done some of my work. and uh, But I'd been producing so long, and and uh, so it was, I got a little nervous with these guys, but it, it, was, it turned out fun, you know, I enjoyed it. And that thing came out over in, actually, it was released over in Japan, and 
I'm doing another uh, another record. Really, I'm not doing it, but there, uh, there's another label over in Japan that's going to be re-releasing a bunch of my old demos, from old Combine demos from the 70s. And, and Fred's going to be kind of overseeing it. And there's a good chance Fred and I may go over there and play Japan, Korea, somewhere. He plays drums. We'll hire a bass player. <laughs> It'd be fun with me and Fred. Anyway, that's, yeah, that, I hadn't done anything like that in a long time, but it was a, once again, it's a good experience. And and it's also to see some of these players doing stuff that they don't, don't normally do that much of around town. We had some, some serious musicians on there. And Hungate, of all things, man, he didn't play bass. He played guitar along with Pearson. He had kind of a fat guitar and did just rhythm stuff. He's a really good guitarist. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I've done that which, uh, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> <laughs> but more recently, you also started performing live occasionally with yeah. some of those guys, Chester Thompson and Bruce yeah, that's D, what, Sam Levine. There was and a, you guys have the greatest name of a band I've uh, ever heard. What's I have a step among friends? Yeah. Well, I you mean, know, I guess half of the people probably don't get it, but the ones who do, I've had they to explain know. it. We don't really rehearse much. and Because, you know, if you play a C and a D, but the full step apart, that can be kind of hip, kind of work every night. And a C and E flat is a minor third, and that's harmony. And a C and an E is, minor. but a C and a C sharp, you know, man, as a rule, that's that's a that's going to there's going to be a wave developed there, you know, especially and so not rehearsing really. We uh we uh have a tendency to have a few mistakes. <laughs> what is it? Was it Mitch Humphreys or something said the longest the longest furthest distance in the world is between distance between two half steps uh, it's something that affects because it 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 uh but we we try not to get so tight that we let the correct chords get in the way of the groove you know <laughs> we we don't want to be too tight mm -hmm. i don't think there's much chance of that uh, larry london the drummer here in town that i dearly love man used to used to use him on some r&b type things and he always wanted to go in and just play just jam or something i never was that good never do it or go play live and I never did and so after he died back in the early 90s it wasn't like that he hung eight back in 06 or 07 was telling me one night I said man you ought to get back and playing live some and I remember that London was urging me to do that before years before and I didn't have so I I took hung eight up on it so if you play and he said yeah and so I got David and Chester and that group basically and uh, with Bruce Dees and uh, David and Chester and, and uh Jack Pearson, and had Max a Max Abrams playing saxophone and Bruce, and uh, so we started doing that live. And then David played one job with us, and then he went out on the road with Vince Gill. So then we had start have a different bass player. We had Bob Babbitt for a good while, a legendary Motown bass player, until he had that uh, brain tumor and died of brain cancer. And then uh, uh, we've had different different guys, but Babbitt was he was wonderful. But we play, we play once every four or five months down at Douglas Corner, whether there's a public outcry for it or not. <laughs> we force it upon the town. <laughs> yeah, you're playing guitar and keys. I play keys mainly, and some guitar on just mainly ninth chords. <laughs> keys to uh, raise nine, you know, the hold it chord. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't. 
do any lead work on either piano or guitar. The one that got too many good lead players around. You know, do that. But it's fun. I basically function as the female chick singer, and I know that's redundant, but they, you know, she's female chick singer. I, because I basically just get the song started, especially in the early days, I would just get the song started and then spend a good bit of the time trying to figure out how to stop those bastards. You know, <laughs> they get into it. It's like if we never really had endings. We'd get started. <laughs> but it was, uh, and I've got several people. The last time we played, Mike Reed came down and sat in with us. Yeah, and I was there. Were you there at that yeah, job? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, and then Jesse and Mike, uh, Jesse sings with a lot, and Chester's wife sings some. Chester, that particular show, he just had back surgery. And so that young woman drummer that plays with Jesse, she's really good, man, too. She's like Chester's protege, Kaylee Moyer. She played with us. That's a fun night. You know, that thing. And now Kyle Lenny's going to start playing organ with us. This thing has turned into a damn R&B review. <laughs> you know, it's like, he's <laughs> what I was saying about four songs. It's fun, though, man. There's some groove that goes down on that thing every now and then. And that's one thing I like about doing that is, when I'm up there and we're playing some kind of, whether it's 300 pounds, some kind of, a, you know, some stupid groove thing, man. But the groove sometimes will be so good, it's like, yeah, I could do this all night long. Just listen to that with Chester and those guys, how good they are. And uh, it's it's worth doing it just to be around those musicians and listen to them play on live. Plus, I'm also a big believer of if you don't do hands-on, if, I mean, if you can. If you can't, then that's understandable. Then you get what you can from music, and you enjoy it, and you love it. and, you, and you, A lot of people are just thrilled by that. But, but for people who, can actually, who, who actually can play, I, I, for many years, have produced and published and worked with songwriters and such, but didn't put any hands on any instruments as far as playing. Except I, I, I played over in church some behind a savant-type keyboardist. I was kind of like playing behind her, learning behind her, Carol Tronquist. And uh, I did that. But but I found that if you have the opportunity to play, you, I feel you don't get the full benefit of music of musicality until you do hands-on. By doing that, man, I found it to be much more fulfilling, no matter how bad. You know, just do it. And uh, playing piano, guitar, or whatever, or singing, you know, because uh, it's, it, it's there for you. People who are musicians, it's it's you know, it's there for them to actually do that. Either do it in their house, do it in a small club, do it however they do it. But it's you know, because you play, yeah, you know. So that's a that's a I didn't for a long time for like twenty something years. Speak of I'm busy making a living. <laughs> <laughs> publishing, producing. Yeah, and you had all those, you know, long-time collaborations like Mike Reed and Millsap, but you mentioned Jesse and Kelly and Sam Hunter and some of the younger, my generation, yeah. that you've yeah. also kind of helped develop. How how important is that to you to kind of pass well, that, it on? That, it helps. It doesn't keep you young. I get older, and, you know, it's, you know, I try to stay active, playing tennis and being, trying to stay in decent shape and all, but far as uh, work-wise and emotionally working with those young kids keeps you excited and keeps you active you know I, Jesse's one of my closest friends and uh, and Sam is too, I don't see Sam that much anymore he's kind of going in a different direction but we uh, work with those young kids man is really very important to me because you know I, it's it's the future 
And uh, both those kids are going to be around for a while. I'm, I know Jesse, we're getting ready to start cutting some stuff that we'll start playing a record label. She's been writing with other people. She write, Stuff she writes by herself is, I think, the best stuff she writes. But she's written with some co-writers that's, that's written some good stuff. And uh, she's Ronnie's favorite singer on the on the planet. Man, cause he, and uh, she didn't know who Ronnie Millsap was. She's just 22. But she, I used her as to help us work up the arrangements on these songs for these duets. And... Uh, and she and Ronnie just fell in love with each other, and they sound great together. And she's the only unknown on this album. And uh, she, like when Little Big Town, when they learned the, this version of Lost in the 50s, Jesse had done the female parts, and they would say, oh, my God, you're great. Who are you with? You know, figuring she was already tied up with management and labels. and oh, she, hadn't even, she hadn't even started that yet. Same thing with Casey Musgraves. Casey, she, when she met Jesse, Jesse had done the, the guide vocal, she, Casey said, God, you're great. I, I can't do what you do. But then Jesse got to see what Casey does. Casey turned that thing, man, on it. Don't you know how, don't you ever get tired of hurting me? She did a country vocal on that thing, man, that anybody on the Grand Ole Opry would be proud of. And it, she was wonderful. And then she did No Getting Over Me also. And Jesse got to watch stylists like Casey in there and see what she did to that song. It, it wasn't about singing real high or licks or anything like that. And Jesse doesn't do that either. But it was just the, the interpretation, you know. And Jesse also got to see these younger artists around Ronnie and the respect and honor they gave him, almost nervousness. Uh, I would, we had already done Ronnie's vocals, but then he would go in the studio with them and be in there on, my, on a piano, and they would be on one mic. And we like we had a little big town all around one mic, and, and they sang, and... Uh, Kimberly, she was really nervous singing that one solo verse, and then uh, and with Luke, and then I'd send Ronnie home after he sung some. They shot videos and things on it, and kind of got an idea where it went. I'd send him on home. He'd leave, and uh, then I'd work on them the individual artists just solo. And Luke said, "I'll do a lot better now that he's gone." <laughs> he said he's hard to sing. He's hard to sing in front of, but Luke did a great job with one Ronnie and and without him. Luke's a lot better singer than people give him credit for. It's uh, what he did on this on this one "Stranger in My House" is pretty damn wonderful. You know, he doesn't sing that type of stuff on the stuff he does. He's not, you know, he's. I told him, I said, "Man, you've done real well doing what you're doing, but there's a side of you that people don't know about on some soft stuff, and also on some uh, more rock type things." And uh, uh, but Jesse got to watch that, and she, it was a learning experience for her because. She's since found out who Ronnie is and is a close friend, but they just they sound great together and they're, they're good for each other, you know. But she's going to be around a while. Ronnie's never, he just loves her as a singer and a person. He has no idea how good a writer she is. He's never heard one thing she's written. It's like it's going to be like a sucker punch when he hears what she writes, you know. But she, I think she's going to do well. It's all timing, you know, timing, talent, perseverance, and Unfortunately, talent may be the least important of the three sometimes. Hopefully, when people timing is right, they persevered and hung in there and gotten enough positive feedback to where they should hang in there. Hopefully, when things come together for them, that they've got some modicum of talent to make it work. But I've always said, you know, talent and success are not commensurate. Just because you're talented doesn't mean you're going to be successful. Or just because you're successful that means you're necessarily that much a better singer or artist than the other people. 
it's a combination of factors. Yeah. So that duet's record is, as far as the recording goes, is that done, or are you still adding to it? The one we're working on now? Yeah. We got one vocal, we got one other person to put on one song that we haven't found. It's a new song, and it's based around the history of NASCAR. It's a, so it's, it's kind of, the first part, the verses are kind of like modern sounds with synthesized drums, and then it goes into a country type thing. It's called Southern Boys and Detroit Wheels. We got one singer to get on that, and then it's done. We've we've mixed everything. Kyle mixed it. It's it's finished except for that. It'll be out uh, this this year sometime. Hopefully within about four or five months to have it together to put that out. And we're talking. It's on an independent label, but right now that they've got offers from two majors and maybe a third. You know, we've only played it for three and two of them on it. So they got to figure out. It'll end up being on a major label. But it's a really good album. It's a benchmark album for Ronnie, man. He sounds great on it, as he always does. And uh, and these other artists, they came up to him. I mean, those singers in Little Big Town, man, they're good. Each one of them in their own way, man. That Karen's become one of my favorite female singers. And the guys, man, they do Mike McDonald stuff to, to Sam Cooke type things. It's pretty amazing what they did. Uh, anyway, that's that's a... That and Jesse have been what I've been working on mainly lately. Yeah. So. so do you consider yourself a producer first, or or, or is it just like a, the sum of all the different Well, things? I don't really publish that much anymore. I publish Jesse, but I don't really have an active publishing company, so I took her down to re-guyer and re-saw her and loved her, and so we split-published Jesse's stuff, so Reed does all the... Uh, logistical stuff and the uh, administration and I help out with the creative end of it and uh, and, and still involved in publishing from that standpoint uh, but other I don't know I, you know I I think I'm pretty good on recognizing good songwriters and, uh, and I've been around some really good singers but I, I think I can I like to think I'm pretty good with finding some songs and, and recognizing talent from a songwriter standpoint but I guess I, 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 you know I, I view myself as much a producer as I do a publisher you know because I've, I've done a lot of both but uh, and then I got this artist thing over on the side that I, I do that's kind of fun just for the sheer part of the music and, and, uh, I got I, lately I've had a couple of songs that have been in movies which is kind of strange I didn't even know the people that were pitching them had the songs and it's kind of nice all of a sudden find out that something's in a movie and, a, and a, some old demo, yeah. you know. So, so I got that going for me, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> what's, that? That, what's that, Ron, man? What's that movie? Bruce and, and Mike are always watching Caddyshack from Bill Murray. Yeah. So I got that going for me, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> and that a demo collection of I guess some of your combine demos got released too as them it all about a, a year ago yeah it came out on Numero out of Chicago and they're the ones that have got these things in some movies uh, yeah, they wanted to do this these some old things you know some of the songs were later on cut as masters uh, probably most of them weren't they were just demos and uh, they put that out and they got one of them came out also in a, a double album yacht rock type set that it was a pretty cool thing. And uh, those kids up there, man, okay, kids, you know, they're your age, young young guys, that they, 
they got more faith in me as an artist than I have in myself. You know, they they they're fans of some of the stuff that uh, I'm just shocked at <laughs> that they like. You know, I'm not shocked, but I'm pleased. But it's surprising because I never put much stock in it. You know, I never really pursued that whole artist thing very much. I like I like being producing to help an artist and writers and such. Uh, I don't really I'm not really consider myself a singer. I'm I can't sing footballs. You know, I hate my vibrata, what vibrata I've got, and so I I'll sing and flit around. I you know or come off the note. I don't really not a singer singer type it's more like a stylist you do it, i only got one way i can do it and that's pretty much what it is <laughs> yeah well the the way i first learned about you growing up in switzerland is the one track that you had on that country got soul compilation yeah they put that uh they put a, a corner spit and whittle on one of those and that was on that nashville dirt album yeah and uh, uh it's just all laid back and you know just Something that felt good. Didn't really know what we're doing. Sometimes you know, and sometimes, and that, and it's had some influence on some people. Some, some of that. I had a young woman the other day from the West Coast who I'd met a couple years ago. It's an artist out there in her late twenties, and she called. She had that Numero album, and called me. She's all inspired by it, and I was shocked. And I was, I told her, I've been very happy. You know, I know she's a really good artist, and she, I didn't think that. She had she had bought it and was and I said well that's good sometimes those things will m mean something to people that you don't really know, you know. I did a one thing you probably don't know. I did a when I left Columbia in '71. I'd met this people come through there from Ohio and they were hippies to the nth degree. They had them cult basically turned out, and that they were doing music and they were singing Christian songs that they'd written. And I went up and produced like two and a half albums on them up at the Cleveland Recording Center. I would go up and the first time I stayed at the hotel up there, the second time I stayed at their farm outside of town and uh, it's strange man, the women wore long, they, they were real biblical, the literal. The women wore long dresses, wouldn't look you in the eye, had a downcast appearance, long hair. There was only one guy, the leader, they would look him in the eye, Larry. And uh, he was a renegade type guy. It turned out that you know we did these albums, and they were they were all runaways from home. They were smart kids. Some of them had been into drugs, one thing or another, but they kind of like rescued them out there. And uh, they so we went in the studio, and they were singing these rock type songs. And they didn't have a drummer, but I hired a drummer up there for them. And a guy named Glenn Schwartz played with them. He was in a group called the James Gang. And uh, uh, and some other group up there, and he was a kind of a well-known guitarist. And uh, I did these two and a half albums on him. I left during the middle of the third album. I I couldn't handle the leader anymore. He just was. He just was too hard to deal with. And it turns out then. They were like forced to disband because he was. It turns out was abusing, some of the children and the men. I mean the and the wives and he was working those people to death. But I guess the point I'm going to make is there two things. One is. He was a pain, but he had these people, and and we cut some music that helped start the whole Jesus Rock movement, which I didn't know that at the time. We just did what they what they had written. They weren't good musicians except for Glenn, and uh, but we we made it work, and uh, it was called the All Saved Freak Band. There was a book written about them, and there may be somebody may have even bought the rights to a movie, and uh, 
Larry then disbanded, and he had to go and go out of Ohio or Pennsylvania somewhere, and and the rest of them they even get together once every so often as survivors of that group. When I was up there, they were on. I only saw the good side of them, basically, although I couldn't handle him. Uh, but there was some stuff going on that I was not privy to, you know. But then later on, I was talking to Phil Kagi, a guy, you know who Phil yeah, Kagi is? And I first heard his name through them, because he's from that area. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, they're one of the pioneers of Jesus Rock. I said, oh, are you serious? He said, yeah, you, that group and Larry Norman and some other band were the first ones in the country that were doing rock music to Jesus lyrics. And same thing with Dan... Uh, Arbach from Black Keys. I, when I met him, I said, I knew he's from that area, and he said he, he had all their albums. You know, Dan knew of them because, because of Glenn Schwartz, and he brought Glenn in town. They cut some stuff, he told me, uh, in the last year or so ago. But uh, they had, a, they had even though that guy was not a Christian man, you know, the, the others were, and, and, the stuff, and the stuff that they did influence people and was and was a solace to people and people liked and were moved by it even though his intentions and part of part of him were the intentions weren't good and so it's it's like these some of these screaming preacher preachers on the air up in east tennessee or some of these tv preachers they may not be pure of heart nobody is but they may not be necessarily they may be businessmen more than they are preachers but there are people out there that hear them and see them that get some good out of it. And it was what was this thing, man. Some good came out of these albums, and uh, more so than the guy Larry would have ever dreamed of, you know. And I'm still in touch with some of them, but I did that back in the early 70s. Yeah. So you mentioned early that some of uh, Ray Charles's early singles, like Little Spark, did he ever get a chance to, to work with him? Or meet him? Not in the studio. I worked with him back in 83. Ronnie did an hour and a half TV special called In Celebration. And uh, he had a bunch of people, Gladys Knight, Glenn Campbell, Leon Russell. And so Ronnie and Ray go way back. And Ronnie didn't want Ray to have to tell him no make it awkward thing so he asked me if I'd call Ray Charles well yeah I'd love to call him so I called him and uh, told him you know, what Ronnie was doing I said I said wonder if you'd if you'd I said all they're going to pay is just scale but would you consider coming in and doing this thing with him and he said yeah he calls him Ronald I, I said I, I said well all it pays is scale he said I don't worry about that I said all I want is five minutes alone with Ronald I said well we can work that out and so they came in and did it in the first the two days of filming down at TPAC, in the first day of filming, Ray was on the first day, and he, he wore the band out, a couple of members of the band getting him all squared away. And on Bruce Dees, the guitar player, he was, he was hard on Bruce. But then after it was over with, he told Bruce, he apologized, man, I'm sorry being hard on you. But he got what he wanted. Bruce gave him what he needed. And, uh, but he, so we got through filming, and I was out in the truck. I came in the control, in the, dressing room that Ronnie had down at T-Pack, it was about half size of the studio. It was a good size dressing room. People milling around, and in comes Ray with his manager. I forget his name right now. And we're standing around, and all of a sudden we hear this, we go, poof, we hear this Ronnie. Ray hit a big thud. But what happened, 
they had gotten a hold of each other, and Ronnie takes his left hand and grabs a sighted person's right arm and follows them, pushes them. You know, let's go, let's go, let's go. And he, and he has his right arm free so he can shake hands with And Ray is used to somebody, a sighted guy, grabbing his right arm and kind of leading him. So Ronnie grabbed hold of Ray's right arm, and both of them thought they, a sighted guy had a hold of him, and off they went. And they made it out the door. They had enough sense to know where the, of where, where, where what was to get out the door, and they ran, Ray ran Ronnie right into the damn wall on T-Pack. Lucky, his foot or something must hit first because his, his face didn't. But it was the blind pushing the blind in that case. And, and then Ray, what Ray wanted to do, he wanted to go in the studio like the next day or so and cut two songs. And Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie was in, in the middle of this filming. He, he, Millsap only juggles one ball at a time, but he juggles it really well. And uh, uh, so Ronnie couldn't go in and do this with Ray in the time frame that Ray wanted to get done. So Ray went in with Willie and cut Seven Spanish Angels, which is a big record. And he went in with... Uh, Hank Jr. cut two old guys, two old cats like us. Yeah, Bob Ray, the bass player, which just told me about that. He was on that session. Was he? Yeah. yeah Bob's a wonderful guy, wonderful bass player. Yeah, but, but Ray, Ray wanted to cut those two, but Ronnie couldn't. Time wasn't going to work for him, so Ray cut those other two guys. But that's the only time I was around Ray, man. He, he's, he was rough on some people, some musicians and such, but he, uh, I gave him a pass because he just... And he may have been doing something back then. I'm not sure if he was off drugs or on them. I'm not, I don't know. But, uh, and, you know, he could just sing anything. He and Ronnie, have. there's several videos of things they've done together. It's pretty moving. Because when Millsap was at the blind school, he went down to Atlanta to see Ray do a show and met his pilot, and his pilot took him backstage and let him meet Ray. Ronnie was in high school. And people at the blind school said, you don't want to be a musician. You know, you'll end up being a ward of the state. You know, you're going to end up making seat bottoms or something or cane bottoms or chairs. Ray went down and met Ray, and he told him, he said, I've been wanting to be a, I thought about being a professional musician. Ray said, well, play me something. So Ronnie sat down and played him something. He said, son, it sounds like you've got a lot of music in you. That's where your heart is. Said, I think you should be a professional musician. So Ronnie went back and told him at the blind school, Mr. Ray Charles said I, should, I could be a professional musician. That pretty much put an end to that, you know. And then they, they stayed in touch over the years. And they one of the last concerts Ray did, they played for the, at the time, the new stadium in Houston where the Texans played. It was the Reliance Stadium then. And it was like 78,000 people or something. And they played, it was the culminating concert for the Houston Livestock Convention, which is a three week long affair. And they did it with Symphony. And they played, and after it was over with Ray, came to him and said, man, I said, Ronald, said, I just love this. said, let's get all our people together, and let's go do a, a tour of this, a national tour. What a great idea. And we were going to call it the Colorblind Tour. And uh, because different colors are both blind, you know. And But then Ray fell and broke his hip or something and got cancer, and Ryan never saw him again. He talked to him, but he, I think, but he never saw him. He told Joyce after that show, he said, Ray's not well, and he was weaker. And uh, and, and during that last year or so, he cut that Genius Loves Company. Yeah. And, uh, but that would have been a great tour, man. I would have gone out on the road for that one. I'd, I'd have seen that. 
Barney and Ray with the symphony playing 20 dates. Man, I wish that had happened. But that's the only time I was around Ray. So we're getting to the end of this. And do you feel like we kind of got to the essence of Rob somewhat? Whatever, whatever that is. I think you did. You covered me playing live and producing and publishing and what I'm doing now. And, you know, it's, uh, you just kind of fall into these things. I didn't, I didn't know I was ever going to be down here doing this. I did radio and thought I might be doing that for a while. But, you know, when I went to school, I didn't take any courses in they didn't journalism. They only they didn't have any communications things like for radio and TV like they do nowadays. I just learned by doing it. You know, there was no production, no music class, no music business courses. You just end up doing it. I know a lot of these kids that want to be in the music business. They they can go to the schools and they learn some basics, but it just basically it's you have to do it, and it takes a lot of time. You know, especially these young engineers. You know, but yeah, I think you covered pretty much everything more than people want to hear. <laughs> dress well we'll leave it up to that's that. when you know you've got enough like, oh, well, people are tuning out right now they're bored <laughs> but thank you for letting me come over here and hang with you man well thank you for for, for sharing all your stories and uh, being my guest today and I just wish you all, all the very best for all well, your same future thing with you Andres. you're around some good people down there with, with young Donnie Fritz and here with Buzz you know Buzz and, and Matt Gaden brought me to Nashville and they're responsible for me being down here. So, Buzz, you can take some part of that blame, Buzz. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrea. Thank you. This was the 22nd episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Buzz Kaysen's Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Nashville. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. Oh,